I think the thing for your rock stars is that to have a room that sounds good enough to put loud speakers in and mix on is really difficult and can be expensive. Whereas a pair of headphones, you're wearing your studio. So if you can get to the point where you know headphones well enough that you can actually mix on them, it's genius. You can mix absolutely anywhere and you don't have to think like, oh man, am I really hearing what I think I'm hearing? Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. You may already know that using true analog gear is one of the best ways to create a great record. Yet increasingly, we live in a digital world, recording and mixing inside the computer. So what if you could have the best of both worlds? Tegeler Audio Manufacturer is bridging the analog-digital divide by creating high-end analog gear like the Schwerkraft Maschine compressor and the Raumzeitmaschine reverb whose knobs you can control remotely using a plug-in in your DAW. Or their many analog units like the Cream bus compressor with mastering EQ or the VeriTube recording channel that let you save your settings using a custom recall sheet plugin, offering a complete line of pro audio gear from compressors to EQs to reverbs and beyond. Now you can get a pro analog sound while benefiting from the power of digital. Let your DAW help you move your knobs so that your music can move you. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about Tegeler Audio Manufactor. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rockstar of the studio yourself. My guest today is Andrew Sheps, a multi-Grammy award-winning engineer, producer, and mixer who has worked with a wide array of great artists from his humble beginnings as a keyboard tech for Stevie Wonder to live sound for Michael Jackson, and on to recording and or mixing top-selling hit records for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Adele, Audio Slave, Green Day, Beyonce, Zac Brown Band, Jay-Z, Weezer, Metallica, and Black Sabbath, to name just a few. Andrew is known for his loud and exciting mixes and for bringing, uh, among many things, and for bringing all that to life while mixing within a DAW, or otherwise known as ITB in the box. He has also helped to create some of the tools that we can use for mixing in the box ourselves with his great plug-in designs for Waves, the Sheps 73 Parallel Particles and Sheps Omni Channel, which I highly recommend that you check them out, Rockstars, because they're very cool. And Andrew has some wonderful videos explaining how to use them properly as well. Andrew is ubiquitous on the internet for his many helpful teaching videos. And for a good reason, he has a ton of experience and a natural gift for teaching. So I'm super excited to have him joining us today for this extra special episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. Andrew, welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I think I already know the answer to this, but are you ready to rock? I hope so, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's very nice to have you here, man. I'm really, really honored to have you on the show. And as I was saying before we started the call, 
just kind of doing the homework on on you and your records and some of your teaching and rewatching videos. Um, for example, you doing this wonderful lecture at Oxford and then also demonstrating how to use your plugins. Uh, it's just so much great stuff. You really, really have a gift for communicating and teaching and simplifying. And you just make me feel relaxed when I listen to you. <laughs> Thanks, Lidge. That, yeah. That's good to know. I mean, it's it, well, I'm sure we'll get into, you know, how all that stuff started. But yeah, I'm really actually, it makes me happy to know that I'm pretty good at that because I feel like with the way everything goes now, you can get information from all kinds of places and you have no idea if it's good or bad or whatever. So having some places where you can get good knowledge, like your podcast and um, Mix of the Masters and all the, the sort of brand names that go with teaching audio, I think it's really great. Yeah, well, that's a thing that sort of clicked with me as I was watching you teach is uh, you're great at teaching, but then I'm like, oh, yeah, but he also really knows how to make amazing records. So when he's teaching me this, you know, it's coming from a place of um, decades of experience. Yeah, I think what's great about it, though, is it makes you think about what it is that you're doing. It's really easy to try and keep it, you know, all sort of off the cuff and seat of the pants and you have no idea what's up, but it's going to be awesome. And, and there's definitely a time for that, but you should always be able to kind of go back and figure out why it was awesome, at least why you think it was, because that just gives you tools to help make other stuff awesome. Yeah, indeed. Well, so I have done an introduction of for you, but um, can you kind of let us know a little bit more about who you are in your own words? Um, sort of briefly, and, and let us know how you got into all this recording and stuff. Because I, I learned some things about you. Uh, I think we actually have a little bit of parallel paths. Um, that, that was not a pun about your plugin either. Uh, <laughs> but um, tell us a little bit more about how you got into recording and, and where you come from. Yeah, I mean, I grew up on Long Island, just randomly. I figured you got to grow up somewhere. So that's where I grew up. And I sort of discovered rock bands in, I don't know, you know, late elementary school, heading into junior high. Um, cause no one in, in the family really listened to that. It was more pop. My brother was really into jazz, um, which is great, but I kind of discovered guitar bands and thought, man, this is the best thing ever. I think the first record, first full length record I bought was Queen Night at the Opera. And I saved up for weeks, you know, nice. and bought that and listened to it until it basically wore out. And then I could afford another record. But so that was something that really resonated with me. And then you sort of spend the next many, many years trying to figure out, well, how can you do that? And um, I didn't play an instrument that worked in a rock band. I played uh, French horn and then I played trumpet. And I was also always kind of a geek. And that led me to doing some lights and then doing sound for people. And that was cool because I could figure out how to run the gear. Um, and it still kind of put me near bands that I thought were cool. And then a friend of my parents had a son that worked at a studio in Manhattan. And it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't any studio that most people ever would have heard of. I don't even remember the name of it right now. And I think they mostly did voiceover mm -hmm. um, and some jingles and stuff like that. But they had uh, a real studio with a real console. And I saw one of those in, in person and just thought, well, that's it. I'm going to do that. You know, it was a real epiphany without even thinking about it. It's just the kind of ultimate version of something with a shit ton of knobs that I was going to know yeah. exactly what they did. <laughs> yeah, I remember that feeling of walking into a real studio for the first time and looking around at all the lights and the knobs and, you know, big tape machines and consoles and thinking, 
this is what I want to learn how to do. It, I, I brought this up on the podcast before too, and I want to ask this um, to you about your experience of going into the studio for the first time. But now I think somebody might be familiar with recording in a DAW and have seen a Pro Tools interface, you know, and, and they're used to a laptop and a computer. And then they see a studio that might have a console and stuff. Um, I, I feel like that's different from back then. Did you have some idea of what a recording looked like and then you went into a big studio or was the big studio like the first introduction to all of this for you? No, no. The studio was the first introduction. And I think it's an interesting question because while you were asking, I was thinking about, well, okay, but so what does that mean for people starting now? But I think the difference is now people have a really good idea of what recording is, even classic console recording from watching videos and seeing pictures and the fact that the internet actually exists. I mean, it didn't. I mean, it existed, but I, I certainly wasn't on it back in, you know, the early 80s when I saw my first console. So, I think all it is is that I had this burning desire to do something cool with rock bands, but I wasn't playing guitar, drums or singing or bass. And so then therefore there was going to be something. And then I discovered that there was recording. So I think that process is probably exactly the same now. And in some ways you're more informed about stuff, even though you may not get to see it in person. You know, like I I learned on an MCI console and until I sat down behind a Neve and behind an SSL, I had absolutely no idea about them. I'd seen a couple pictures and, uh, you know, there'd be like an article in Mix Magazine with a picture of it and go, oh, that looks cool. But it wasn't like now where you've got the plugins, you've got the manuals online. I mean, you could know how to drive one of those things and never be within 50 miles of it. Yeah, that's true. I remember um, going to school for recording and, and seeing consoles for the first time and they would they would give you a test where they'd give you sort of a blank sheet of paper and you had to understand the signal flow in the console and it was all brand new. Um, yeah. So, and then, you know, I learned how to use an SSL and then I, I hardly actually used one for my career after that too. Yeah. So that's a difference right there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in learning different automation systems and things like that, I mean, it's just massive, massive technical learning curves on specific gear that you may never see again. Yeah. Like, man, I could use some synchronizers that nobody's ever even heard of. Like it's Yeah. And you kind of had to learn them that deep if you were going to use them anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, because I mean, those were you couldn't sort of kind of know how to use it. You either knew how to use it or you didn't. The links, I think that those were the ones that I I remember having to really learn. Oh yeah, I mean the links, those were the ones that most people knew. But there was, um, I think it was the master lock, and there was there was something we had at Miami when I was starting, like just crazy stuff yeah. that shouldn't ever have been let out into the the world. You know, but, so, so um, now you went down to University of Miami, is that correct? Yeah, for, for school. Yeah. When was that? I was there 80 to 84. Is that right? No, no, no. 84 to 88. Okay, great. Well, so so there, there's a little bit of our parallel path. Um, I believe my uncle was Tad Foote, who may have been uh, just become the president of University of Miami at that yes. time that you were starting there. Wow, that's really funny. Yeah, yes. so, so, and I know that. Um, you know, when I when I decided to go to recording school was ninety one for me. Uh, I, in fact, had I gone the first time around to college, I might have been your classmate. <laughs> it's a small world. <laughs> That's funny. There were a lot of people there at that time too. It was a really good time to be there. Yeah, both for engineers and also for musicians. So it, you know, it gave you amazing people to record. Um, do you want to make any comments? Because uh, you had some great things to say about being in a school environment um, when you were speaking uh, at the Oxford Ledge 
uh, lecture. And I know there is a dialogue that goes on on the internet about, you know, schooling for recording versus doing it yourself. But you had some great comments about just being within a community. And I wonder if you want to say anything about your school experience. Yeah, I mean, I really loved being there. It was the reason I was there is because my parents said you're going to get a four year degree. I mean, that was a time when if you didn't have a university degree, there was a real disparity in what you could do and what you couldn't do. And my parents were both teachers. So they just said you're doing a four year degree. So I only had two schools in the country at that point, um, at least that I knew of. There was Berkeley in Boston and then there was University of Miami and everywhere else. There were recording programs, but they were sort of tacked on to other majors, whereas mm -hmm. this was a full on thing. So that's why I chose it. But um, I loved being there because it was part of the music school, which was terrible for me because it meant I had to play trumpet all the way through college, which was a nightmare. But <laughs> I mean, and not just for me, it was a nightmare for anyone in the room with me. But it meant that there were a bunch of great musicians um, that you could record. You know, we had to record everybody's senior recital, and those were all recorded by students, um, as well as there being a studio that you could book out overnight. There were sessions from 5 p.m. until 8 a.m. every weekday and then 24 hours a day on weekends. Yeah. And you would just book the studio in five-hour chunks and go fail. I mean, what's great about it is that it is a place that you can fail miserably, and nobody knows. It doesn't matter. If it takes you five hours to figure out how to use the automation and now your session's over, well, okay, that just wastes wasted a bunch of your time, but now you know, and next time you have a session, you'll use it and it'll be fine. So that I think is great. And I think that the biggest thing for me though, is there's this thing about, you know, there's no right way to engineer. And that's absolutely true. And I think there's some amazing records made in very bizarre, unorthodox ways where, you know, textbook would say that that's not the way to do it. But I think that basically that's missing the point. That's making an argument that doesn't actually exist. What my argument is, is you need to know how the tools work that you're going to use because then you can use them any way you want to use them. Yeah. But if you just learn on your own, you may not understand that you could go out of an 1176 and that could be line level. You know, you don't have to go into a premium. You could take a 57 straight into an 1176 and record it. And they're just things about impedance and level matching and what actually is a compressor and which pieces of gear could you run through backwards and which can't you? And when should you use a reamp box to go into a guitar pedal and when don't you need to and all that kind of stuff. And that's what lets you go be crazy and be super creative. But if you don't have that base knowledge, I think really you end up being less creative because you find stuff that works mm -hmm. and you'll stick to it because you don't trust necessarily that you can go do something totally different and you'll be okay. You know, before we started this call, um, I had mentioned to you that I have one of your plugins, the Parallel Particles plugin. And I mentioned also that in getting ready for this, I went back and watched the video where you explain how to use it. And it's funny to me to hear you describe learning um, and then using stuff because even something like that that you tried to make really easy to use and simple for me, I, I learned a lot just by watching you describe it again and had these aha moments where I'm like, now I'm more confident to go back in and be more playful with it and use it in places I might not have even tried to use it before. So I think that's really insightful. Uh, another thing from schooling that I experienced and always described to people about going to college for recording, and I think I heard you talk about it um, at Oxford as well, is just that simple idea of, of 
putting yourself in a place where you are surrounded by people that are all doing the exact same thing that you're trying to learn how to do. And that's all anybody wants to talk about. And I, I find that to be a really helpful experience. Yeah. And I, I think at that stage in your life, it's great because you aren't yet paying mortgages and supporting children for the most part. You know, you're just there to do nothing but that and to be able to just live it and breathe it, I think is amazing. And to the same point, I think later on, you know, 10 years when you're out of school, the worst thing in the world is to be surrounded by people who do nothing except what you do. I think then you start to lose perspective and you start to think things are important that really aren't. And it's great to get a a real reset when you know, you've just spent 12 hours working and then you go talk to somebody and like, well, yeah, but you don't really work. And, you know, they're kidding around or whatever, giving you a hard time. But you can say like, well, no, compared to the guy who's cutting down trees all day. No, I don't. And that's fine. You know, and I, I think that that's really healthy. But when you're learning it, man, it's great to never have to think about anything except that and possibly like donuts. Yeah. Well, and another thing, uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about that, you know, later on where you want to, what you want to surround yourself with. But you were talking about, you know, taking inspiration from great painters and things like that. And I think that becomes a really important part of understanding your experience in recording and and mixing music is you need to begin to draw inspiration from places that have nothing to do with the technicality of the equipment you're using. Yeah, well, because the the point is to get past the technical part, to know the technical part so well that you don't have to think about it. And then that's when you get creative. And creativity is creativity. I, I don't think it matters whether you're doing music or painting or writing or thinking about how to talk to a kid or, you know, it doesn't matter what it is when you're making stuff up out of thin air the better perspective and the more references you've got from everywhere, the more creative you'll be. Yeah, indeed. Well, so uh, let me uh, try and move us forward through some of these questions I've, I've sent you as well. But, you know, I like to ask um, our guests to share an insp- inspirational quote on the podcast. And I wonder if there's anything that you wanted to share uh, to kick this off that kind of gets us excited about hitting the studio. Oh, man. Can I admit that I read the hell out of the document you sent me and then I completely (laughs) forgot that I needed specific things? Oh, that's all right. It doesn't have to be that specific. But um, are there any um, people that you sort of have admired that that you might want to reference in terms of answering that question? Anybody that you take inspiration from? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of being in the studio, people like uh, like Bruce Swedean and Al Schmidt, who just make everything look so effortless and they seem to do nothing, yet the balance and the clarity and the depth is just ridiculous. And then on the other side of that, someone like Chad Blake, where everything is not necessarily natural, but it's still so emotionally compelling and awesome to listen to. Um, so yeah, guys like that who just do things that I couldn't possibly do because I have no idea how to listen that way, but that I still always want to hear what they're doing. Mm, I think that's a really insightful thing too, to remind us that we can admire what somebody else is doing and get close as close to that as we can while accepting the fact that they're always going to hear it and do it differently than we are. And and that's okay. That's just fine. 
Yeah. And I think the big thing to keep in mind is that to get close to it is just to try, like if you're trying to get close to what Chad does, it's like, well, okay, distort some things and make the low end totally cool and all the sounds encapsulated and pan things. But you certainly don't need to know like what plugins he's using to do it. Cause I've seen what plugins he uses. And when I try it out at home, it sounds like crap. So <laughs> you gotta, you know, you develop your own thing, but it's, it's again, it's exactly the same thing we we're talking about with the education. It's separating the art part from the technical part. And when your technical stuff is strong, then you can apply other people's art because you sort of try to listen the way they're listening as opposed to tweak the way they tweak. Yeah. And uh, watching you do your, your lecture uh, on YouTube last night uh, at Oxford, I think it was, there were a couple of things you said that really stood out. One of them was, I, I believe you described a shift in your own experience where you went from thinking that you needed to rely on the tools, that the sound was coming from the tools, to realizing the sound was coming from you, uh, which sounds like w what you're describing about you know the difference between all of us. <laughs> but it also reminded me of a movie that I watched the other the other night that my my daughter's a big fan of. It was like the new Thor movie, and and in it. Um, He's, you know, he loses his hammer and he thinks he loses all his power until he discovers that he didn't need the hammer in the first place. It was just him. Right. I, I, silly analogy, but um, I, I think that's really important to remember that that what we do. Uh, it's just important to remember that we br what we bring a lot to the process, and it's not just the tools that we're using. And yeah, and the tools aren't irrelevant. I mean, because you know, if you're smiting people, a hammer does help. <laughs> right, but indeed. <laughs> But yeah, but it's not about the tool. And that was a, a terrifying experience for me. That wasn't just a, oh, hey, I guess the tools don't matter. I mean, that was, I'm going to stop using hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gear that I'm not even going to sell, but I'm not going to use it anymore to mix. And somehow everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And that was brutal. But, you know, I'm out the other end of it and pretty happy about it. Well, you know, if that was a decision you make, when you're young, just starting out, uh, it, it's sort of like, well, I'll try this, I'll try that. But obviously, um, if you're into your career and you're trying to make a big shift like that, you, there's a lot more at stake than just um, making something sound good, too. I mean, you literally have families to feed and, and um, a lot of responsibilities to, to uh, keep up with. Yeah, yeah. So let me, uh, if, if it's all right, I'll jump into some specific questions with you. Um, you know, this is actually very similar to what, what you were just saying. So I had just written down, you know, about working in the box. And I think it was a quote from uh, about you just saying, it's only the tools that have changed remarkably. My philosophy and sound have stayed the same. Is there anything more you'd like to say about just that and, and that shift or, you know, what it means to have a philosophy of sound when you're creating a mix in, you know, in the computer? Yeah, I mean, this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately because I do think about these things constantly. And I think what it's turned into is this concept of having an idea. Like if you go to mix something and you just go left to right, soloing up your tracks and you make the kick drum sound ridiculously awesome and then you make the snare sound like holy shit and then you make the toms sound like thunder and then you make the overheads sound super clear and bright you know and you work all the way down your track and then you try and put all those sounds together they may or may not go together like all of that tweaking was so irrelevant that it might have been a total waste of time now hopefully you solved some problems along the way and whatever but 
if you just do that, then all you're doing is reacting to each individual thing and going to say like, oh, well, kick drums need to have low end and attack. So I'll make that happen. And snare drums need body and crack. And and it's not the idea of when you listen to the song saying, I think this should be reverby and distant. And there's this one guitar lick that I want to give me goosebumps. Yeah. Those are the things that then you struggle and struggle and struggle and try to achieve them. But you also have something you're working towards. And it doesn't have to be as broad as that. It could be like, oh, the drums sound boxy and I need to fix that because it's bothering me. I mean, right. that can be the idea. But that those ideas need to be as zoomed out as they can be. Otherwise, you can really just get lost going in circles and circles, which this will come back around if you were going to ask me, like, well, how do you know when a mix is done? And that's why I started thinking about this is that I know for me, a mix is done when I've answered all of the questions I put to myself when I started, not like, oh, well, hold on. Have I EQ'd every track? Because right. I don't don't need to. So, yeah, this having an idea of what it is you're trying to achieve in the broad sense, I think, is probably the, the best thing you can do. Uh, yeah, I don't know when a mix is done, but I only know when the podcast is done. It's right about uh, an hour or two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, hearing you talk about those those things and knowing um, what we probably all know, uh, rock stars, you've probably heard people talking about like, you know, don't, don't build your mix, just soloing everything. Cause when you put it back together, it's not going to, it's not going to make sense. And so that can be both enlightening and confusing. Cause then, you know, we might get nervous about like, Oh shoot, maybe I shouldn't solo this one. I'm trying to do something with it. But it occurred to me that the process of going through one by one and soloing stuff, that is a process that works great for maintenance in the studio. Like when you're trying to chase down a problem or a buzz oh, yeah. or something like that, you really have to break it down one thing at a time. And and then I started having this this epiphany where it's like, oh yeah, it really is the soloing is almost like the maintenance part of mixing where you do need to identify things specifically, but then there's this whole other level that, and then that's where we get stuck sometimes. We think if we just do the maintenance and then you know unmute everything, it should be great. So it's just a, I'm just sharing that epiphany that I had listening. To yeah, you talk about yeah. It. Well, and, and the maintenance is like when you're done with the maintenance, now you can actually start. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, so um, tell us about uh, these pl plugins that you've developed for Waves. Um, the ones I'm aware of the the Shep Omni Channel, Parallel Particles, and the Shep 73. If there's anything else, let us know. No, um, no, that's them. Okay, great. Uh, can you give us? I know we have there's lots to find on the internet, but maybe give us a brief introduction to what they do. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Shep 73 is really straight ahead. They were going to model the 1073, um, because they had done the VEQ, um, I don't know how many years before, but obviously analog modeling technology has come light years since it started, you know, those early yeah. bomb factory plugins are still super cool, but they're not nearly as in depth in terms of the way they model things. And so when they were going to do that, I had been talking to them for years about doing, you know, something and we hadn't figured out what we were going to do. And so the product manager, Mike Fratis, just thought of me and said, well, that dude's got 10, 10, 73s and a BCM 10 and he likes them and he uses them all the time. So why don't we do this with him? So that's what that was. I mean, it, it, that's really what it was supposed to be. It's like, here's a 1073. And so yeah. it was sort of based on everything that I love about 1073s as opposed to everything I love about one particular 1073. Yeah. Um, then Parallel Particles came from 
the original discussions with them were about, well, how do we make plugins that do the crazy parallel stuff that you do? And we never really came up with a good idea because it, it involves spanning so many tracks that to make a plugin that would work in every bit of software where you've got audio flowing 70 different places that isn't part of the native mixer. And like, it just felt like it was going to get really messy and confusing. But while we were doing it, I thought, well, okay, but what about four processes that I do a lot, but that aren't always shared? Like the parallel compression, what I love about it is sending lots of stuff to one of the compressors because it all interacts in there. But like, what can we do that would be good to just put on an insert that would be such a pain in the ass to build yourself? Like if you built four parallel parallel chains, two of which that get mixed together to feed the other two, you're using, I don't know, 12 auxes and a bunch of plugins and things like that. And we thought, well, okay, let's put that into a plugin. So I mapped nice. that out in an afternoon and we built the audio portion of it in a day. Wow. And so then it just took months to get the interface right. Oh, that's very cool. Well, watching you describe how to use it, it simplified it so much for me and it really helped me understand uh, a couple of things. It helped me understand that parallel particles, I could, I, it's okay for me to try it on any track I want to, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's not like a just for vocals thing or something like that. It's it's really useful everywhere. And then the way you described it and the way you explained that, um, you know, if I kind of set it where it's it's hitting its operating level in the right ballpark, and if I turn it each of the four different parallels down, uh, then it should be not having an effect yet, and and I can sort of bring in those other things and blend them in, which I thought yeah, was very yeah. cool. Yeah, it's all about blending. That's the idea is if you, if those four knobs are down, your signal is exactly the same. And the only thing that affects it is level. That's great. Yeah. So there's no process kind of inherent, but then you get your four. Well, very cool. Um, how about the omni-channel? I thought that was very impressive. And it makes me wish that I could just have an omni-channel on every channel in my mix and, and <laughs> maybe a little controller to control the whole thing. <laughs> well, you can have one on every channel of your mix, I would think. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's basically that one took a hell of a lot longer than an afternoon. Um, but I, again, talking to Mike Fratis, the project manager there, product manager, um, we started talking about a channel strip. And so I started thinking like, well, what would I want in a channel strip? And my original drawing, half of it is exactly the same as that. And half of it is absolutely nothing like it. Um, and some of that was because of technical limitations. So we implemented things in a different way that actually ended up being cooler. Um, and some things were trying to keep the processor load down so the, that you could have 30 of them or 40 of them and it wouldn't really be an issue. Like the fact that with each module, the default is that nothing is engaged and zero processor and zero latency. And then if you engage everything, it's still zero latency, but obviously the processor load picks up, mm -hmm. um, but that things turn themselves on. So when you touch a knob, that module becomes active. So it isn't one of these things, like there's nothing I hate more than twiddling knobs, convincing myself, I, I think it's better. I can't really hear it. And then you realize, oh, right, it's bypassed. Right, right. Like yeah. you just, it's such a, not only do you feel like a total idiot, but it's just such a waste of time. So as soon as you touch a knob, things turn on, anything can be in any order. So it was this idea of a channel strip being, for the most part, it's what you need for any kind of instrument because it's flexible enough to do it, but not 
so flexible that it's impossible to use. Yeah, and then um, hearing you say that that when it's off, it's not engaged. Um, another thing for me, sometimes I might want to put a plugin on and just use the uh, the DSer feature, but not all the others. And mm-hmm. so that's cool if it's the, if it's if they're all there, but I'd, I'm not loading down the processor if I just want to use part of it. Yeah, if the if the title of the module isn't orange, then you're not using it. It's actually completely bypassed. Um, and it seemed like it did some other cool features, like when you grab the the frequency knob of an EQ, it was soloing up that band of the frequency so that you could hear it easily. Yeah. Yeah. If you hold down control um, on any frequency cue or uh, boost or cut in the EQ or in the de-esser, because that's also when you're de-essing, you want to hear what it is you want to de-ess. So um, yeah, it actually turns it into a bandpass filter with the shape that you've got selected. So you really hear what it is that you're going to be controlling. Um, I'm going to jump right ahead to one of the questions I had specifically about DSing um, and see if you if there's a, anything you want to explain about it uh, and maybe how it pertains to the Omnichannel. So I, I use DSing all the time on stuff, but one of the things that I find that is often a challenge for me in vocals is as a vocal gets compressed and and kind of gets um, saturated and just comes forward, I get a lot of mid-range consonants like ch and sh and things like that that are really challenging. And and I never really quite understand how to tame those. Is there anything you could tell us about using the de-esser? Is that the right tool for, for trying to manage that stuff? It's not up in the higher S's. It's like all this yeah. other stuff. Well, that that's one of the things that I was adamant about with the de-esser in this plugin is that it's actually full frequency range. You can de-s, for lack of a better term, at 30 hertz if you want. You know, So you can get it down in the mid-range, but usually with a standard de-esser, when you're down in the mid-range, it's from there on up. You know, It's a shelving filter. It's not a parametric filter. Right. Um, and with the one, I mean, there are other ones that have this type of filter, but with the one on the Omni channel, you can actually have a narrow or a wide bandpass. So you can zone in on that. The other thing I would say though, and this is nothing to do with the Omni channel, sometimes you just have to DS twice because the way DSers work is they don't look for stuff at a certain level. It's not like a compressor, which just says, whenever you're over this level, I'm going to compress you. Most DSers are looking at the difference between the energy across all frequencies and the energy in the frequencies you're telling it to look at. And it's that difference. So the more you compress, the less difference there is. So it's harder for it to actually go into it. So what you'll do is you turn them into Sylvester because you're just sucking out everything that's top end. So if you DS a very first thing, there's more dynamic range between those S's and Ch's and the rest of the vocals. So you have a better chance of actually sucking them out before the compressor. Then DS again afterwards, if you need to. I think that's great to hear because I've found myself asking that question a lot. And I've always thought, well, if I need more of an extreme difference between things, then I should put my DSing at the beginning of a, a chain of stuff before I've compressed it. But yeah. then I've also thought, but after it's compressed is when the S's seem so damn loud that maybe I should put it out. Yeah, but but the more you can take care of it before the compressor, obviously the less there will be afterwards. I mean, I generally DS twice. It's the first plugin on the vocal track and it's the last plugin on the vocal chain, whatever oh, that cool, is. Cool, cool. All right, that's a great tip. Thank you for that. 
Um, and then, yeah, I found and also, my... the, Sorry, just the other thing is sometimes you just have to manually edit them. I've yep. got a macro that takes whatever is selected, separates the region, turns it down 5 dB because I have to do it so often. And it started from S's. Yeah, uh, that's a great tip. And I, I don't uh, often... I don't often do that to vocals when I'm mixing, and I, I probably should. No, um, it's brutal, and I hate it, and I never, <laughs> ever, ever want to do it. But sometimes you just have to, Yeah, you know, especially if you know you're going to vinyl, because S's will explode on vinyl. And something that you can kind of get away with on digital files will really sound terrible on vinyl. And we're mixing, making records that are a lot louder uh, overall, a lot more energy, I think, than, yeah. than the records that were made years ago when vinyl was the only medium. Yeah, but DSing, I mean, if you look at any classic analog mastering desk for cutting and there's a DSer on it. Yeah, oh, interesting, okay, cool. Um, all right, so let me see, what did I wanna ask you about? Um, so if I want to address some of those ch -ch, that that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm used, trying a DSer and I'm just simply hunting around for the frequencies where those really just hurt my ear as I, as I, as I discover them. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one thing to do. Another, especially with Chuz, is editing them will help a lot. Okay. But the other thing is the attack time on your compressor. Because if you've got too slow of an attack, that will get through the compressor. So if you can speed up the attack a little bit, you might catch them. And did you include attack and release times on the DSers? Or on the compressor, no. I'm sorry, on the compressor. Uh, yeah, on the compressor, not on the DSers. Okay, no. okay, cool. Um, now, the next question I want to ask is, uh, if you can go down to a low frequency on the DSer, is that something you might use to help address a plosive? Or do yeah. most plosives just need to be addressed manually again? Well, again, I generally will, um, I've got a preset for a one-band EQ3, you know, in, in audio suite. And I, if I've got real trouble, I just sort of zoom the waveform, whip through the vocal, and high pass them at like yeah. 120 or something like that. You can just automate a high pass if you want to do it that way, whatever. I like to see everywhere there's automation. So the, the idea of having automation on just a high pass filter doesn't appeal to me. Um, but yeah, you could absolutely uh, use the low frequency DSer for it. You just want to make sure you're not taking out too much body of the vocal. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Well, thank you for uh, telling us about all those. Um, again, Rockstars, there are many videos where Andrew has really broken down the Omnichannel, Parallel Particles, the 73. Um, so just go check those out, and I'll include links to those in the show notes, too, so you can go go see them. Uh, Andrew, let me jump into some specific questions about records and stuff and, and just talking about you know making records, how that might apply. Um, one of the records that I remember really loving when it came out, too, was Audio Slave and Kochi's has got one of the best rock snare sounds ever. And uh, I wondered if you would like to share any advice about mixing great rock drums to sound full and in your face with, without also sounding harsh. Yeah, I mean, first of all, that record, uh, the drums were tracked by Dave Schiffman. Um, and the album was mixed by Rich Costi. I came in and did a lot of, they were tracking to tape. They had about 200 reels of analog tape. And so I did a lot of the assembly wow. and then a lot of the overdubs. Um, wow. but, uh, and I got to do an entire round of vocals with Chris too, which was absolutely mind blowing. But, um, 
that snare, we commented on that snare all the way through the tracking. David walk in <laughs> while I was listening to takes and like comping verses together and things like that. And be like, man, that, that snare makes its own sauce. That was how we <laughs> described it. It's a bell brass and it was just brilliant. And it, it was, it, it had to be tuned right. Those snare drums eat heads. Heads do not last long. I think it's because it's got a sharper rim or whatever. Yeah. I don't know enough about it, but you know, there was a drum tech there all the time and it was a difficult job to keep that snare sounding good. But man, when it was right, it was just absolute magic. Um, in terms of mixing stuff, I mean, I, parallel compression on snare drums is great for mm. getting length. The problem is, of course, you end up bringing up hi-hat because usually the hi-hat is as loud in the snare mics as in the uh, as the snare is. So that's kind of the problem is compression is great on snare drums, but it loves hi-hats too. So it's yeah. just finding that balance, really. Compression eats hi-hats for breakfast. Uh, well, unfortunately, it seems to eat them and then puke them out all over your speakers. That's the problem, really. It brings them up. You know, it just makes them so loud. Because when you really smack the snare into a compressor, then the hi-hat's just there all the time. And there's no dynamic range left in that. So yeah. it's it's a bit of a problem, which is why parallel can be good. I use de-essers on snare compressors all the time just to suck that stuff out or even static EQs, just like get rid of the mid-range. If you can manage to keep the crack and the rattle and get rid of some hi-hat harshness, then that's the way to go. And also you'll get that from overheads and you know that it's that space around the snare drum that lets you have a super defined close mic that'll work. If you just have that by itself, it's going to sound really, really dry, especially once you start putting guitars in and things like that. It's just not going to work. But the parallel compression and the overheads and then even parallel distortion on drum kits, things like that, just to give it length, is what will make the snare still feel dry, but it won't actually sound dry at all. Okay, so if I understand what you're saying, uh, it's a reminder also that the close mics are terribly important on something like the snare, but it's also those mics on the rest of the kit and the energy mics that really give us the character and the, the the fullness of the sound, especially when you have guitars in there and stuff? Yeah, and I think, like, the way I mix drums, I get a lot out of overheads and, like, mono microphones that are close to the kit, but I have a really hard time with room mics. They always just sound too distant and too messy. So mm -hmm. I get ambience by crushing close things more than I do by using far things. I mean, I hear records with room mics. I just think like, man, I wish I knew how to make drums sound like that, but that's uh, just not something I'm good at. Um, are there any sort of amb ambient crushable mics that most of us are forgetting to include when we record the drums that you want to remind us to maybe try? Oh man, the best sounding mic on the drum kit will be your talkback mic. <laughs> take an SM57, point it at the side of the drummer's head and put it through like an 1176 or something like that, all buttons in, like really smash it. It is the best vibe mic ever. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for saying that. So I have a friend here, Jamie Tate, who mixes a lot of great records. And he had a talkback mic that was like that. He talked about it on the on the podcast. I think it's a a 58 that was pointed from the drummer away. And it was meant to pick up everybody in the room when they were just talking during a tracking session. 
Same thing. That one always just goes right in the the final mix as well. Yeah, indirect miking is cool. I mean, because you you think if I take a directional mic and I point it away from the drum kit, like oh well, that's just going to be noisy, but it it's still a hundred times closer to the drum kit than anything else in the room. So the drums will be loud, but it won't be miking any particular part of the kit. So yeah, that can be great. Great to just point one at the floor. Um, just try things, but don't go more than six feet away from the kit, and you're more likely to be able to put it in. I mean, we're talking about awesome. like a rock a rock song with distorted guitars, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's you know something that gets me excited. And certainly, a lot of the records of yours that I'm listening to that I'm like, oh, I want to ask about that. They they probably have rock guitars in them, you know? Yeah, well, and they've all got a '57 near the drummer's head. That's great. So uh, two thoughts. One is. I love that you mentioned near the drummer's head because it reminds me always that the drummer's head is where the drummer's used to hearing his instrument. And I, and I always think it's worth at least checking out a mic near the head of the musician because there's a good chance that instrument might sound pretty damn good in that spot because that's the way the, inst- the musician is making it sound. Yeah, well, Frank Filippetti and Elliot Shiner just did something where they – had a traditional miking setup, and then they also put, I think it was lavaliers, I don't remember exactly, um, strapped to the head of every musician and recorded a band. That's cool. Uh, and then compared the two. Rockstars, just a reminder, so you don't have to discover this um, the way I did, but remember when you do put a mic very close to the head of the musician, if that musician happens to be a drummer and they've got the click track really loud in the headphones, you might be hearing that click track in that mic. Yes. So watch out for that. Um, and then the other uh, sort of silly thing, and you could, uh, I, I almost hope you shoot this down, is um, I had noticed before that the, maybe not even the talkback mic, but the scratch vocal mic that always made the drum sound cool, or or often did. And I was like, oh, it oh, sounds yeah. cool. And then I was like, oh, cool. Well, I should remember to put up a fake scratch vocal mic for the drums. And then I try that and I'm like, oh, that one doesn't sound cool. <laughs> it's almost yeah. like it has to be wrong for it to sound right. I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know why that isn't. A lot of times, like, you'll think that sounds cool. And then once you really get into mixing, it's like, oh, well, it's actually too far away and messy. But, you know, it depends. Sometimes that is really useful. Yeah. All right. So here's another record that you did. Um, Black Sabbath 13 was uh, um, had some really great sounding. I'd almost describe it as like 3D bass. And I wondered yeah. if you want to talk about how we can create more depth when we mix bass. Well, again, I mean, the source on that was amazing. That was uh, tracked by Greg Fiddleman, and he's amazing, and Geezer's ridiculous. So if you start with a great bass player playing a great bass through a great bass rig, and then that's a lot of your job done. But um, I think the biggest thing is to make sure that you don't have other things interfering with the bass. Like, it's really easy to say, man, I want the the drum room to have a bunch of low end on it because that's going to sound super cool. And I want the thump on the guitars to be massive. So you really hear when they do hand mutes, like the bloom on the cabinet and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But that's where the bass is. So if you want the bass to rule, let it rule and then see what else fits. Um, I think that's the main thing The if you've got a decent recording of a bass and you just make it loud and give it enough low end, as long as you don't start trying to fit other things in where it already is, it's going to work. Uh, I think that's cool. And I like that. If you want the bass to rule, let it rule. And, yeah. And let it rule first. <laughs> and I remember the first time I heard somebody suggest 
something similar about the kick drum and the bass um, saying, you know, there isn't really room. It's it's sort of like a small uh, Western ghost town. You know, there isn't room in this town for both of us. You, you sometimes have to realize that you're going to have to let one of those two speak a lot in a certain area of the low end and, and they can't both try and fill it all up. Yeah. I mean, and there, there are tricks you can use. I mean, there's like in EDM sidechain compression mm-hmm. of the bass with the kick drum sort of thing, but you can do that with acoustic instruments too. Like one of the reasons the de-esser is full frequency is because you can put an external sidechain into it. So if you put a de-esser at, let's say, I don't know, 80 hertz, 60 hertz on the bass, but trigger it with the kick drum, it'll only suck a little bit of low end out of the bass every time the kick happens. Now, that might be terrible because you're going to lose the attack when they're playing together, but it might also be that you really want the character of the low end of the kick drum whenever the kick drum plays, but you don't want the kick drum to rule the low end because it doesn't play all the time and you need the slab of low end energy. Uh, So there are ways to make it happen. And that's cool that you brought that up. I was just about to ask you that because I remember you talking about that. And Rockstars, um, you're referring to the the omni-channel plugin has this sidechain feature to the DSing, which is really cool. And again, that reason why you can um, sweep down into the lower frequencies and it could be useful there as well. Yeah, especially because if you've got, let's say, I mean, the example I gave in that video was like an EDM track, so you've got a, a real buzzy bass. But let's say you've just got a distorted rock bass and you can't feel the kick drum enough. You can poke a hole in the bass only in the low end And humans aren't going to notice that because if that mid-range buzz is still there from the distorted bass, you won't think the bass went away. But if you sidechain compress it, it will actually duck out, and that can be distracting. Right, and then you can, um, because of the sidechain de-essing, it's going to, as the kick uh, transient comes forward with the kick's low end, it's going to move the bass out of the way and the low frequency a little bit just to make room for it and then comes back in. So you you will hear that. You'll hear the effect of hearing the kick drum. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, and it doesn't, it doesn't work nearly as often as I would like it to, because in my head, it's such a great concept, but you know, well, it's, every once in a while, it's genius. You know, it, that's, that reminds me, it's one of the things about why it's so great to share um, so many how-tos in, in the world of recording is because it doesn't mean that, the, that a particular how-to that um, somebody shares with me right in this moment is going to exactly work for what I'm trying to do. But it, I love that Learning any new thing means I can get excited about going to my studio and trying that out, and I'm going to discover something for sure. You know, I'm going to learn just by, through the act of trying something. Yeah, yeah. And this goes back to the very first thing we were talking about. If you don't understand exactly how DSers work and how external sidechains work, you'll never come up with anything like that. Yeah. Um, so one more question uh, regarding low end, then we'll take we'll take a break for the jam session and come back in for some more questions. But um Jay-Z, the Black Album, that was a very important record, and I know you've probably talked about it many, many times, Um, but I wanted to ask you, what have you learned about mixing hip-hop from Jay-Z and others uh, that you've worked with? Um, Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think the, the thing about 99 Problems is that I mixed it like it was a rock track. I mean, it helped because it had guitar samples, so it was a bit like that. But yeah. I just don't, 
I don't treat it any differently in my head. It's still, and this goes back to that, having an idea, the less specific and the less technical your ideas are that you want to achieve, the more you can just apply anything to anything. So you don't say, well, that side chain DSing thing is an EDM thing. Like, no, that's a low end definition thing if I really need to do it. So whenever you're having a problem, with low end definition between two instruments, you can think about whether that's the way to solve it. So like that, the mix on 99 problems is really straight ahead, very little gear. It was on a, a Neve desk. I had a, a Fatso for some of the loops and I had an 1176 for the vocal um, and then board EQ and no automation. So it's really, really simple, but there is a lot going on to make sections act like choruses and things like that. You know, I mean, if you've got a loop that's going all the way through a track, but you get to what should be the chorus, you've got to beef that loop up somehow. It's got to get louder and wider and deeper and all of that, because otherwise you don't get the energy. You know, it's not enough to just have like hook vocals. You need to support them with stuff. So, yeah. Well, you know, you talked about that a lot. I've heard you talk about you know, when you get to the chorus, it needs to open up. The chorus needs to be bigger, whatever. Uh, um, can you just describe a little bit about what that means to you? Um, how do we know, this maybe is just too dumb a question, but how do we know that the chorus is opening up enough, that it's hitting? Because it feels awesome. I mean, that's it. It's just, it's like, it needs to feel like it's opening up so that when you get to the chorus, it's exciting, but not because you made the verse super boring. You yeah. know, the verse is awesome and does exactly what it's supposed to do. But when you get to the chorus, it's like, yes, we're back at the chorus. Awesome. So, you know, musically, it's something that comes back and everyone's excited to hear it, but it needs to feel that way, too. So it can be as simple as just like, you know, the band was good. And so they added some guitar parts or they go, went up in a voicing or something like that, or the bass went down where it was up high in the verse. I mean, anything like that'll do it. But when you're mixing, you can do it just by adding a parallel compressor in the chorus. And that's what I did on 99 Problems. I added the fatso just in what we were considering the choruses. Nice. Um, so, yeah. Um, let me spin this one last question, then we'll take the break. So, uh, you know, as far as feeling, that implies that you know, I, if I'm going to know if something feels great, I mean, there's only one person to ask, and that's me, you know? Yeah. And so, but but at the same time, I think sometimes we can doubt ourselves and doubt our feelings. Do you have Always. any any advice or tips for how you either avoid doubting your feelings or how you sort of keep revisiting this this trusting your own feelings and make sure that you've got, I mean, is there like a, just what advice do you have for that about, about people well, being able to trust themselves? I mean, the the honest answer is when I don't trust myself, which is pretty often, I have my wife listen to the mix and she says, oh, that's messy or, nice. oh, that's really great. And she's not technical. She doesn't do this. I mean, obviously, over the years, she's learned things, but like the worst thing she can do is try and tell me why she thinks it's no good. But when she says, I don't know, it's like really annoying in the verse. It's like, oh, OK, what's going on? And you realize, well, it's too much hi hat or there's something like that. Right. But. It's also, I think the biggest thing for me just trying to get through it on my own is to get away from it and come back and just first listen, quiet, is it exciting mm -hmm. or is it not? And then you can go ahead and listen loud and see if like the things that are supposed to physically impact you are still happening. But it's that first listen where you can't kid yourself. And I think it's really important 
it's one of the things I love about mixing in the box is I'm constantly getting perspective because yeah. I'll work on a song for 20 minutes and close it. When I come back, it's not only that I haven't heard it in a while, but it's also I've forgotten what the last 12 things I did were. When you work on one song, you remember everything you've done. So as those things go by, you kind of check them. And you say, yep, I did that. Oh, yep, I did that. And it sounds cool. And you never actually are just listening to the song. So whatever can give you perspective, then you need to trust your gut reaction to it when you have that perspective. Yeah, that's great. And I remember hearing you at the Oxford lecture talk about that that same idea of in the box allows you to gain a fresh perspective more often during the day, which is just a really, that was a great insight. Uh, you know, something I remember about mixing on a desk was that I would actually learn, I'd memorize what the mix was supposed to be. And, and now there would be variety as I pulled it up, but uh, that's, you know, I never thought about it like that. Um, you sort of like learn how to perform that mix. And, and when you're in the box, you, you do get that chance to forget and hear it fresh, which is very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so Rockstars, we'll take a break for just a second. We'll come back in for the jam session. Uh, a reminder that you will find links in the show notes, um, please visit that. If you're on your mobile device, you can just click right through and go uh, see. I'll include a YouTube playlist and a Spotify playlist so you can go listen to some of these records. And we'll see you in just a moment for the jam session. Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Super Dupes, working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299, or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Hey, Rockstars, we're back for the jam session. My guest today is Andrew Sheps, and we're going to jump in and ask some more awesome questions about making records. A Andrew, are you ready to jam? Always. Awesome, dude. Um, well, so here's one. This isn't specific, but I just wondered, you know, you had done the Weezer Red album, and I wondered if you wanted to share any uh fun stories about that record anything fun you remember about it yeah that that record it we actually took quite a while to make it and we tracked first at uh studio in malibu which is very traditional and things and then i think it was river's idea there was a uh malibu like performing arts center and so it was a a hall that seated i don't know 800 maybe no smaller than that probably like 600 something like that and it was available. And so we rented that. And it had a control room. They built a, an API legacy control room, like upstairs and down a hallway. And there was a video link. And so the first day we went there, the idea was we could set up everything on the stage all at once. And they could just move around and choose instruments and play. Mm -hmm. And so we set up. And it took you know two days to set up. And I'm set up up in that control room. And within about 30 seconds, I just knew this sucks. Like they're <laughs> down there 
on the stage, wandering around, looking at each other. And I'm looking at a video monitor. I can barely even hear them when they're talking because they wouldn't be next to a mic. And I thought, well, that's it. We're not doing this. So we moved that first night down to the front of house position. And I just used, they had a Midas like analog front of house board. It was actually a monitor board, but it sounded great for monitoring. Mm -hmm. And then I had a BCM 10 and an API 1604 for all the inputs. And it was great. We were all just in this big room and I had speakers, but I'd wear headphones while we tracked just to make sure that everything was okay. And then they'd kind of wander out into the seats and hang out and we'd listen. And then they go back up on stage and play something else. And we just had amps everywhere, drum kits everywhere, keyboards everywhere. It was, uh, yeah, it was really, really cool. It's a, it's a thing that I think a lot of people think would be a lot of fun, but it's really difficult to actually do it. And we did it. And we were there for a couple of months. So it was great. I, I'm trying to remember. Somebody else shared the story. Was it was it Ken Sluter? Yeah. Yep, Ken Sluter, uh, Dana Nielsen, um, and then Dave Schiffman. Actually, I was out of town for a month. I think it was the first time I did a Mix with the Masters seminar, maybe the second. Um, and so Dave came in for a month to take over engineering. But yeah, yeah, Ken worked on that quite a bit. I think it was Ken who told that story as well and, and um, gave you a lot of points for showing back up on a Saturday to reset up all that stuff. Oh, man, there's no way I was going to make other people do that. That's Because like, also, you know, you, you want everything the way you want it. And the only way to do that is to show up and do it. So, yeah, yeah. no, but that was great. Awesome. All right. Well, now here's another specific one. Um, uh, Kaleo, Way Down We Go. Uh, yeah. One of the things I remember noticing in that was there was just kind of this cool stereo uh, flam drop snare sound. I, that's, I didn't know what other words to use. It's like, and I feel like it's something I've heard in hip hop too, where it's like, you know, you, the snare's dropping, but you hear other things on the left and right kind of landing with it. And I wondered if you wanted to comment on just cool ways to get sort of a wide stereo snare sound on records. Well, that is a lot of percussion from what I remember. So those are actually other things happening on the backbeat. Um, I don't remember specifically, but I'm sure that that had like stomps and claps and yeah. things like that. So, I mean, obviously that's one way to do it. Um, another thing which I don't do, but I've seen people, and I think this originally came from Alan Sides, who I'm sure got it from somebody else, is miking the snare bottom stereo. Interesting. Because the snares are basically reverb. I mean, that's what they're meant to be, right? They just resonate when you hit the drum. So the top head is the impact head and the bottom head is just the I have length head. So Mike, that stereo. And I think, you know, for a rock track, it's not going to be that wide, but man, is if you're playing quietly or brushes or anything like that, that's actually super wide. That's a super cool idea. I love that one. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. I'm going to try that on my next, next <laughs> recording session. Cause that's how and I, it, that's how I roll. <laughs> and if it's terrible, just, just blame Alan. I blame myself. <laughs> uh, um, okay, cool. So now, uh, another one was a acoustic guitar and you actually showed some cool ways to use again, the DSer and the Omni channel on acoustic guitar, which probably pertains to this question. So I was listening to the Jake bug Shangri-La record. And, um, I was thinking about how those acoustics, feel rock and roll and sit right alongside electrics and it they, and they just go together real well. And I wondered if you wanted to comment about acoustic guitar and, and rock stuff or, you know, some things that people don't always think of to try as far as treating the acoustic to make it fit. Yeah. Um, again, I did not record those acoustics and I'm trying to think like if there was anything in particular I did. I mean, some of them 
were recorded while Jake was singing. So, of course, you've got your bleed issues. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think with acoustics, though, you really have to decide, like, what's the job they're doing? If they're on their own, then you've got this whole world of, like, mid to lower mid tone. That's Mm -hmm. the body of it. And how do you make that sound good and natural without being boomy? And that's something like that de-esser down low in the low mids or whatever could help with kind of tame when it gets boomy, but let you not have to just EQ it out. But as soon as you start putting other instruments in, especially electric guitars, it's just what is it doing? And because acoustic guitars, when they're strumming, have two jobs. One of them is tonal and one of them is rhythmic. And you Mm -hmm. just have to decide, is it only doing one of those two jobs or does it have to do both? And which one's more important? And how are you going to make that happen? And the tone is going to be up above all the cool, good sounding part of the guitar. The tone is going to be in the mid range. So you just decide where you need to focus the guitar and don't worry about whether the guitar sounds good on its own. The drag is when you get like a, uh, sorry, just hit the mic again. The drag is when you get an acoustic intro and then that guitar continues on, but then the song gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you may need to automate, you may need to have a track that's just for the intro and then it'll actually change sounds once other stuff comes in because the thing that sounded good enough on its own is way too big to live with everything else. So you just have to figure out how to transition that stuff and make it happen. That, you know, you're reminding me that's, for me, has always been the toughest songs to mix. The ones that look like a long triangle that gets, you know, that just crescendos. Um, And I, I guess... I guess those are ones that are frustrating because it seems like you can do less of setting a balance and then that's going to work for most of the song. It's like you can kind of set a balance here and then you're going to have to do a bunch of stuff at the end or you can set a balance at the end and you're going to have to do a bunch of stuff at the beginning. But yeah. I guess automation is really where it's at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, if the if the arrangement is done well, you can get closer to a balance than you probably think you will. But it is things like the one instrument that's all by itself at the beginning. That's a special thing. So that's got to sound a certain way. But that the, I think the only mistake you can make is to decide, OK, well, now that's the way that has to sound all the way through. You need to make the transition so it isn't distracting, but you probably have to transition the sound when the other 900 things come in. Nice. Um, all right. Well, so now here's another specific question. This one is uh, Adele 21. I've just mentioned or noted that it was a great example of vocals with space around them, yet there's still room for a powerful band too. And I wondered if you wanted to share any tips about mixing where you leave space for the vocal uh, and the band is you know still powerful. I've certainly heard people and I tried this myself, talk about like, you know, maybe don't mix the band first, maybe start with the vocals and then add the band. You know, what would you like to talk about as far as um, making sure that you don't, your your vocal doesn't sound like a little pinched fly in the middle of your mix, but still <laughs> sounds wonderful. Well, I mean, obviously that's kind of a special case because of her voice. Um, and also it's a ridiculously good band. And again, tracked by Greg Fiddleman, it's, it, it all sounds really good. But in general terms, the way I do that, I can't start with a vocal. That just doesn't make any sense to me. The vocal is the most important thing. There's no question about that. And mm-hmm. I need to, when I start a mix, I always listen with everything in and I listen to the rough mix. So I know what the vocal's going to do once I get it back in. But I need to get the band together so that I know stuff works. Because once the vocal's in, it's really difficult to listen to what's going on with the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But the thing I think that works for me is this shared parallel compression thing. So I've got a stereo parallel compressor that most of the instruments go into, and so does the vocal. So when the vocal hits that compressor, it's the loudest thing in it, and it pushes everybody else down. So it's almost like auto-mixing, but because it's blended in, you don't hear things pumping. But that really helps build space for the vocal, is to have it affecting the com- the parallel compression on other things. Yeah, that uh, you're you're referencing what um, I've seen videos of the, this rear bus compression idea, which yeah. is really amazing and and so cool because I feel like the first thing I learned about parallel compression was how it would help my drums, and then when I learned about this idea that you're talking about now, it's like, oh, here's how this could be helpful if you don't put the drums in it, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. And I think like the one thing that happens constantly is people say, well, how much compression is there? And, you know, how do you have it set? And the reality is I have absolutely no idea how much compression there is in that. Like that's mm-hmm. something that drives itself. When you get the balance, your gain structure is pretty much the same over and over and over. Every mix lives somewhere near the same sort of level. Mm-hmm. And that bus is set up so it just works so i have no idea how much it's compressing and it could be different on different songs because it reacts to frequencies differently in transients so it's irrelevant what's relevant about it though is that it's shared amongst everything in the mix except the drums and sometimes a little bit of the drums if i feel like i'm losing the drums um I, it did occur to me to ask whether or not we could use the parallel particles plug-in as a uh, rear bus compressor on that and return. you can't. You actually can't because it's, it's <laughs> because it's already bringing in the dry signal and the compressed. Well, it's to... yeah, it's that, um, and it's not phase coherent. We originally designed it with an insert mode and a send mode, so you could mute the direct signal. But because of the way the processes are and the way they line up, it's only phase coherent within the plugin. There's no way to just say, "Oh, that's the delay comp for it," oh. and now you're cool. So you can't just send off to it. It'll be phasey. Well, I think that's cool. And and also, it's one of the things that I felt like I appreciated about you designing plugins is you really are watching our backs with these things. Yeah, which, man. I, I hate nothing more than to like have there be a gotcha. Right, you know? right. Uh, that's cool. All right. Well, so um, let's see. What else do I want to ask you here? Um, okay, this one, I you, you may have sort of touched on this a little bit before, um, but you know, my question is, do you ever find yourself struggling with mixing uh, between the way you think it's supposed to be done versus following your instinct and just doing what feels cool? You talked a little bit about that with this, you know, knowing that the chorus is right because it feels right. But is there more that you want to say between your own struggles between um, when you think something's supposed to be done a certain way to be done right versus it just feels good? Yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, I might be kidding myself, but I don't think I ever think about like how I think it's supposed to be done. It's more that I get this idea in my head about how it should be able to turn out and I just cannot make it do it. Like there should be a moment that's total goosebumps and instead it's just kind of cool and like, well, but that's not as awesome as I wanted this to be. And so I will fight that and fight that and really, I mean, I'm struggling on a mix right now with that where the mix sounds really cool and I think it's awesome, but I think it should make you cry in certain spots and I'm not doing that and I can't figure out where I've gone wrong. And so that happens a lot, but the, you know, that how you're supposed to do it 
is I don't think there is a how you're supposed to do it in terms of a technical like, okay, you should use this to do that or whatever. None of none of that matters at all, I think. No, but I think that's insightful to hear you just talking about, you know, the your your own feelings about uh, working on something and saying, this is where my idea of where it should be is and this is where it is now and sort of balancing those two things. Yeah, and it's really difficult and really super depressing sometimes. <laughs> I know. Um, uh, we don't have to go into this, but uh, you know, of course, there's the the discussion of mixes are never really finished; they're just abandoned. Yeah, and, and I'm sure sure we've all talked about that lots. Um, oh shoot, I just had a thought, and uh, it'll probably hopefully it'll come back to me here in a sec. But um, yo, I know what it was. It was. Would you like to? comment at all about the, you know, your, your presentation at Oxford, which was wonderful. And that's the video to go to watch to, to really understand this, but just reminding the rock stars that this, this idea of you have control of things only in that moment when they're sort of in your computer and you're mixing it. But once it leaves the speakers, you know, it's out of your hands. Um, That was something you talked about at Oxford. Would you like to share that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you know, the catchphrase is the only thing that matters is what comes out of the speakers. But then there are a million different ways to interpret it. But the the one you're talking about, I think what that really means is you can't need to make any excuses for the mix. Yeah. You talk specifically yeah. about mixing because you only get to tell people who are physically in the room with you why the snare's really distracting and shitty. Like it once you hit play, Nobody cares what you said before. They just listen to it and they might think the snare is absolutely fine or they might agree that the snare is really terrible and distracting from the song. But then that mix can't be done like you. And this is the you know, going back to how do you know when a mix is done? It, there can't be anything left that you would make an excuse for. And the way I like to describe it is before you send a mix to somebody who isn't going to come in the room with you, you write an email to say, Hey, the mix is up. And that email starts off really long, like, Hey, and the chorus isn't jumping quite the way I thought it would. But I think that's something to do with the way that the drums were tracked and the bass parts a little weird. And the, and you have to keep deleting all of those things out of the email because you've either taken care of them or decided that they're either fine the way they are, or there's absolutely nothing you can do. So it must've been intentional. And then you get to the point where the email says, hey, man, there's a mix. And that's it. And then that's how you know it's ready to send. Well, I think we're all familiar with that, you know, playing a mix for somebody else and immediately making an excuse. Oh, this is, well, this is just a rough one. We didn't really finish this one yet, but, um, you know, anyway. And uh, it's just a reminder. It's like that, that doesn't have any effect other than to distract people or maybe set them up for disliking it to begin with. But, yeah, yeah. But I feel like you just reminded us that they're, they they kind of don't give a shit. They're going to listen for what they're listening for. It's probably they're just going to decide whether or not they like the singer. Yeah. You know, to begin with. And and you can't like there are a lot of times if you're mixing for a young band or whatever, they're not going to have a really great idea. I mean, every once in a while, there are people like the guys in Kaleo. I mean, that was their first record and they knew exactly what they wanted. Exactly. Super painstaking, which is great because I love people who actually know what they want. But yeah, there are a lot of bands. They don't know exactly what they want. And they might be like, oh, yeah, it sounds cool if you just tell them it sounds cool. But the flip side of that is you don't want to just sort of get away with something. You don't want to say, man, this mix is not really happening, but these guys don't know anything anyway, so they'll probably think it's cool. 
and be done with it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter like if it sounds good or not, but if it doesn't feel good, you just shouldn't play it for anybody until it does. Yeah, indeed. Well, I mean, and I think there are times where I, well, I guess I'll just spin it back on your email analogy. I like that you're describing whether it's actually done or whether it's sort of figuratively done, but writing down all these things that you think are problems with it. And then just like, maybe just trying to address them all. If you addressed them, that's all there is left to do about it. Yeah. You can delete it from that list. Yeah, exactly. You've got to get to the point where you're okay with somebody listening to the mix. And it might be once you get the comments back from them that you can then say, man, I was thinking exactly the same thing. And here's what I was struggling with. And what do you think or whatever? But you can't have to list them before they listen. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right. Well, so now let me ask you, just generally speaking, do you have any great stories about working with the Duke spirit? Um, That was some very cool sounding stuff. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. I'm basically uh, I don't remember what project it was that made one of their managers want me to mix some stuff, but I mixed two songs on uh, Neptune and then we had talked about me possibly doing a record with them, but I was still living in L.A. and they were London based. And then they decided they wanted to make a particular kind of record. And it just it didn't make sense for me to come over and do it. And then I got an email from the band saying, hey, man, we've tracked a bunch of stuff and we're really not sure what we've got. And would you have a look at it and things like that? And so I started having to listen and I felt like there was stuff that. I don't know, like it was cool, but it didn't really fit the band. Like one of the things about the Duke spirit to me is I saw them live and they are badass. Nice. They are such a great band to see live. Leela is an absolute star. The band plays great and are just fucking awesome. And this stuff didn't feel like the band. So while we were going to figure out what to do, they said, well, we're going to come to L.A. because we've got to finish the record anyway so we can finish it with you. And I I just said, well, while we're waiting to see, like, if there's a budget and what you want to do, let's just set up and do some tracking at my place and see how it goes. And we tracked most of that record in, I don't know, two and a half weeks or something like that. In my studio, which was not big enough to do it. And what was great is that Ollie was playing drums out in my little tiny drum room. And then the rest of the band was just in the control room. The control room was big because it was a mixing room. So Leela was just on a mic at the back of the room. And the rest of the guys were playing DIs or there would be an amp that was stuffed literally in a closet. Not an amp closet, just a closet Uh with a 57 on it. Um, and that's the way we tracked the record. And we had just had the speakers cranked. No one in the control room was wearing headphones. And poor Ollie, like we'd finish a take and we'd all be excited and be talking about it. And then we'd hear this voice come over the drum mics like, uh, hey, guys, um, so how was that? Because he, he couldn't hear us and I'd forget to put the talk back on. And But oh, yeah, it yeah, was yeah, awesome. Yeah. It was it was a lot like the, the Weezer session in a way. Just I mean, I've never thought about it before, but it was just this super live band playing together kind of thing. And uh, well, that's like the way most of the record went. You just immersed yourself within the band as you're working on it too, which is a fun experience. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the best thing about producing is you get to be in the band for a bit. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I sort of had to think about what it is that I really want to do. I mean, I, I just turned 50 this year and I'm at that stage of my life where I'm like, well, what do you, what do you really want to do, Lidge? And when I think about and, and break down um, music in the studio and everything, I realize that my favorite thing to do is to just spend all day in the studio making music with friends. You know, that's really, it boils yep. down to that. And I think it's why I like tracking bands so much um, is because in working with the musicians 
Uh, I love mixing too when musicians are here, and it's um, it's just fun working with people. Yeah. See, and actually, I love working on my own right now, mixing completely by myself. It's uh, it's weird. I love producing bands. I love being in a room, but I can't stand mixing with people around. <laughs> it just I find it like I keep trying to not impress them, but like you do things that you think maybe they'll like you doing instead of just doing whatever you think of is kind of in a trance and then seeing what the hell happens. So, yeah, yeah, it's weird because that my favorite thing is actually not even recording. My favorite thing is pre-production in a rehearsal room. Yeah, totally. Totally. Because you just sit and listen and you make them do all the work. And it's awesome. I've gotten some great recordings in rehearsal rooms, too. Oh, uh, yeah. See, but as soon as you're recording the rehearsal room, that's not as much fun to me. <laughs> but it was just a uh, four track. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But um, yeah. well, so speaking of studios, tell us about Mono Valley, um, if I'm pronouncing that right. Yep, uh, yeah. And yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a really funny, um, it's a coincidental name because I thought it was M-O-N-O Valley, but it's actually, it's the River Mono, which is M-O-N-N-O-W. And it's a river that flows through Wales and right on the border of England and Wales. And it it comes and dumps into the Severn River. And so it's, uh, you know, it's just a river and it's Mono Valley is the valley the studio is in. So anyway, it's a studio that's been around for a very long time. Um, like a lot of Bohemian Rhapsody was written there. It was the writing room that was attached to Rockfield, which was the recording studio. It was owned by the same family and things. And then they split up and it became its own commercial studio in its own right, um, I think 40 years ago or something like that. So anyway, I mixed a record there and then I tracked a record there and I worked there and the live room is amazing. It's a great, great live room and very versatile. It's sort of three live rooms that go from dead to live to super live. Um, And you can completely close off the dead ones. So I've tracked six piece bands in there with the drums in the middle, bass player sitting near the drummer and then everybody else in the dead room with their amps blaring. And it's been really, really cool. And anyway, I'm making this a much longer answer no, than no, it needs to. No, that's all right. But so when I worked there, they had an SSL, um, and the SSL was kind of on its way out. It was just old. It needed a lot of love. Um, and the very first time I worked there, I said, man, we should put my Neve in here, kind of as a joke. And nice. I'm really good friends with the owner, and so we talked about it for years and years. And then once I stopped mixing on the console – I needed to do something with it. And I thought, well, great, I'll take all of this amazing recording gear. It's the best recording gear ever made, as far as I'm concerned. And it needs to go in a studio. So I'll find a studio that's got the space, but doesn't have the gear necessarily. Who wants to partner? And I probably investigated over 100 studios in the States, and nobody was in a position to do it. Because you need to have this very weird knife's edge to your business where you make enough money that you could afford to pay a bit to have somebody else's gear in, Mm -hmm. but you don't make so much money that you wouldn't change anything. And most of the studios that probably could have benefited from it the most, they just couldn't afford it. There is no way that they could say this chunk of the monthly income is already spoken for. They needed every single penny they got just to stay afloat because of how the studio economics are. And it just worked out that Mono Valley needed to do something about the SSL and the timing worked out perfectly. And so it was like that room was built for the Neve. It fits perfectly. It sounds way better in the control room, just monitoring wise than it did with the SSL because the console is like a couple feet further forward. Yeah. 
So anyway, well, that's it's now, and it's, it's an eighty sixty eight, right? Yeah, it's a double eighty sixty eight. So it's sixty four inputs, which is you know that's that's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's just ridiculous. But it's also when I had it in L A, it was L shaped because I couldn't fit it kind of end to end. So it's the first time I ever even saw the console put end to end, and it's amazing. You know, it's yeah. this twelve foot long Neve, which. So That's cool. the kind of thing that made me want to do it in the first place. <laughs> yeah. You know, you walk into that room and say, I want to do that. So now it's still a commercial studio. Um, I'm probably producing a record in August where I'll go down there and track because I managed to book the time. But if they'd already been busy, then I wouldn't have been able to use it. So it's a commercial studio. Anybody can book it, but it's got my console. It's got all my outboard gear, all my microphones, all my guitar pedals, most of my instruments. My mini Moog is there, you know, my Rhodes and my Whirly, like all that stuff that I used to surround myself with in LA is now down there and it gets used every day. And the best part is when I know the people who make a record there and I get to talk to them afterwards and they have the same experience I do there where it's like, man, every time I push up a fader, it just sounds great. And I just am happy. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I, there was a, I believe it was a 8068, a Neve 8068 that was in studio a at the first studio I, I interned at right here in East Nashville, Woodland studios. And I remember hearing that console for the first time. I was just like, good God, this sounds so amazing. Um, and I think it might have been Frank Zappa's old mobile live console. And All right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a great sort of time in the Neve development because it was it was still a series of console where you could put a, a, the modules that are in there, the 33102s, um, that is basically a 1084. So it's still the end of that 10 series console, but it was after people actually had started doing more multi-track production. So you have eight sends and you have 16 buses and it's not very limited. You know, mm -hmm. it's an inline console. So it's super flexible, which is great for mixing, but it still has that sound. But before they went to the 8108 and then to the Vs and, and onward. And I seem to remember it had bigger knobs on it, like big blue knobs for pans. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. It's it's the it's the same size knobs as you know 1073s. So all the EQ are, are those knobs, and the pan. That, well, the monitor level is that size, and then that's there's it, like one right, yeah. one smaller knob for all the EQ. I mean, all the the sends. But and we all can that stuff. we can still agree that big knobs is kind of a good thing in life, right? Absolutely. Okay, great. In every sense of the expression. <laughs> um. Uh, I noticed that Yamaha and STEMs were listed on there, and I wondered if you, what you're using to mix on, what what do you like? Uh, do you have any comments on monitors for mixing? Yeah, I mean, I mix, uh, my speakers are Tannoy SRM-10Bs. I've just owned them forever. And at one point, they got really tired, like the cones were worn out, and I didn't realize you could recone them, because I knew if you blew them up, you could never get parts for the crossovers and things. It was all custom, and the drivers themselves, but I didn't realize you could recone, and they just started sounding bad to me, and I went to NS10s for a little while, and I hated it. I just never <laughs> got to terms with it. Half of my mixes would sound amazing, and half of them would have horrible problems in the low mids, and I could never tell which mix was which until I heard it somewhere else, and like, oh, right, that's horrible and have to go sort it out. So I love my Tannoys. I actually mix in headphones a ton just because logistically it's easier for me to do that than to get in front of my speakers. Hmm. Um, and I just use uh, Yamaha, no, not Yamaha, Sony MDR 7506s. Oh, nice. I know um, those well. 
which a lot of people hate. They're, they're really bright, um, but I'm just used to them. And I don't know. They seem to make sense with the tannoys. They, they are bright, but they're relatively flat. And the best part is I can really hear low end in them. I, you sort of yeah. feel the low end the same way you do out of speakers. So that's all I use. Those NS10s that are at Mono Valley are my pair that I never use anymore. Um, I remember watching Dave Pensato on a video talk about mixing with earbuds because, you know, in this day and age, people are often listening on earbuds. And he said it helped also to uh, be aware of panning and stereo field Im- uh, issues that yep. would, you know, are going to translate, need to translate that way that you might not hear the same in speakers, which I thought was yeah, insightful. Yeah, the only the only part of it I kind of disagree with is doing it because people are going to listen that way because you would never check a mix on like earbuds that aren't really in all the way or with one in your friend's ear. Like it's <laughs> you would if you're going to mix on earbuds, you're going to close couple them. You know, hopefully you've got ones that actually go into the ear canal and you can actually hear low end and things like that. But what's what is great about it is first of all the stereo image obviously cuz they're on your ears. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also balance. It's why back in the day, everybody had Oritones, small mm-hmm. speakers, because you can't get distracted by the fact that you think the kick drum sounds awesome. When you listen on tiny little speakers, you actually just listen to the balance. So for me, it wasn't even a way like, oh, it's easier to hear that stuff on there. It's a way to force yourself to listen to it. So it's that changing perspective again. It's why having multiple sets of speakers or listening in mono every once in a while just it forces you to listen to things other than the great audiophile genius that you are, you know, with your <laughs> drum sounds. Um, and I just haven't, but I've tried some earbuds. So when I'm traveling, I'm even more compact, but I just can't find anywhere I can really feel the low end properly yet. Um, so you do trust the low end coming from the Tannoys, then those were the ones you might go back to to really get a feel for the low end. Yeah, but you know, I, when I started doing mixes on headphones, because I was traveling more and things Mm -hmm. like that, I thought, well, I can probably get the balance together and maybe even the vocal sound, but obviously the low end I'll sort out once I get on the speakers. And very quickly, I don't have to sort out anything when I get on the speakers. So the only thing that I can't always hear on the headphones, or it's not even that I can't hear it, it's that I think is okay on the headphones, but then when I listen on the speakers, it's not quite there, is how much impact I've got on the kick and snare. So Mm. when I listen on the speakers, I can't kid myself about that, because you turn that up and that needs to physically thump you in the chest, which is something you won't get off headphones, but everything else... I hear it on the headphones and I go listen to the speakers and it's exactly what I think it should be. I'm never surprised by stuff, which is good. And I think the thing for your rock stars is that to have a room that sounds good enough to put loud speakers in and mix on is really difficult and can be expensive. Whereas a pair of headphones, you're wearing your studio. So if you can get to the point where you know headphones well enough that you can actually mix on them, it's genius. You can mix absolutely anywhere and you don't have to think like, oh man, am I really hearing what I think I'm hearing? Yeah. I I think that's wonderful. And I appreciate that. I think that's a a huge encouragement to our listeners, um, the rock stars. And thank you for for calling them by name. Um, Absolutely. So I mix every year. I I do a, a studio at the Bonnaroo Festival here and I mix in a pair of headphones and I mix live while the band's performing in the studio. And, and so that's been an experience for me where I'm just in headphones and like, I, I can't even go back and change the mix later. So I got to just get it as good as I can. But I've also 
experimented with, um, I enjoy kind of turning them up so I can feel it a little more. And I cut my ear, I, you know, I touch the earphones and I, and that changes the low end slightly. And that's just, yeah. you know, I feel, feel more like a cool DJ at the same time. <laughs> but, um, do you have any comments about mixing loud versus soft in headphones? And do you notice that, you know, you need to turn them down to sort of judge balances and that, that sort of thing? Yeah, just like speakers, you know, you when they're cranked up, you can say, man, that first snare hit is exactly as powerful as I think I want it to be. It's like it takes me by surprise and the vocal really feels great. But you can't hear tuning. You can't hear balance. You can't hear all kinds of stuff. You can't hear if there's too much cymbal like if you crank it up, maybe the cymbals will hurt and then, you know, OK, it's something I've got to take care of. But it's hard to hear the balance of the cymbals when you listen loud because your ears are immediately going to start clamping down. Like right. it's not it, – and it isn't just your brain deciding what you're going to hear. There's actually a huge physical feedback process. And when you listen loud, your brain puts dampening on your inner ear just to keep stuff from vibrating. So you actually cannot hear everything when you listen loud. So there are things you need to listen to loud and things quiet. And I know there's some people who mix at kind of a medium volume all the time and they never touch the monitor knob. And I think that's super commendable. I can't do it. I need to be loud to hear certain things, but I work very, very quietly, probably 75 to 80% of the time. Yeah. Uh, and then another question about headphones is, do you also spend, I mean, I guess we kind of all do, but do you make it part of your process to just try and listen to as many other records that you appreciate in headphones too? So you're constantly referencing against that? No, never. I'm <laughs> I'm the worst person in the world for this. Uh, references just confuse me. My brain gets so used to the world that I'm building that I think my mix if I've listened to it for half an hour, 40 minutes, something like that, sounds better than everything else on the planet while I'm mixing. Nice. And it's also why I've got this one pair of speakers I can mix on and one pair of headphones. If I put up other speakers, I'm just listening to music. I can't work. I actually don't feel like I know what to do. As soon as I hear it on the Tannoys or these headphones, I'm like, oh, yep, got to get the kick drum, little pointier. You know, you reach yeah. inside of it and start working. I don't feel that way with any other playback, which is good because when I listen to music somewhere else, I don't feel like, oh, man, I want to mix that. Like, I just listen. So that reminds me, um, and I appreciate you sharing that insight, that so much of making records and so much of mixing is really just kind of knowing what to do next. And that if we can just have a, you know, that, and it's also avoiding confusion and doubt. Yeah. So, so when we put ourselves in situations where we cast a lot of doubt, uh, then it just confuses us and makes it hard to know what the next move is. So. Well, and it goes back to this this concept of having an idea and that idea being creative and not technical because otherwise you'll go down your technical list of things you're supposed to do and then you say, well, I don't know, should I be done? Like, wh where am I? As opposed to constantly trying to achieve this sort of creative end because then every th what to do next is always based on what you're hearing. Always. You yeah. never think like, oh, I made a list and now I need to do those things. It's like, oh, that's bugging me right now. I got to deal with it. And the only drag about that is that you can forget things that bugged you earlier. But if they really bugged you, they will bug you again. Yeah. Well, I will I will add that there is one time where 
and and I enjoy this in the process where you do get to kind of go down a list and and it's recall notes. Yes. And I, and I think you described that as being one of the things you really love about working in the box that you can pull up a mix and address somebody's specific issues rather quickly and, and yeah. take care of them, which is great. Yeah. And not only that, but it's just made it so I got an ear break on the thing I was working on when the email came in. So yeah. you look super responsive. You send out revision 10 minutes after the email comes. <laughs> But and, you also have totally fresh perspective on the thing you were working on. And is it worth reminding the rock stars how much um, budget it might have used to cost to go into the studio and do recalls on a record? Oh, it sucked. It sucked. I mean, I would not even just in terms of like the money you would have to spend to do it. Even once I had my own studio with my own Neve and my own outboard gear, I needed the time. So somebody would need a recall. I would have a mix up on the console and I'd have to say like, you know what? I need to get three of these songs done before I can even do your recall. So I'll try to do it on Saturday. So you finish those three songs that this other band needed and you're like, oh, great. And then you realize, oh, fuck, I got to do a recall. And that's going to take four and a half hours and I'm completely resetting the world I was in for the album I was mixing. And it's it's just a nightmare. There's nothing good about it. And plus you didn't get to take your Saturday off. No, exactly. Or you had to stay super late on Saturday. So, all right. So let me jump in. Well, I'll just ask a couple of the last questions here, the usual jam session questions. But um, first one is uh, when you started out in recording, what was holding you back? I don't know. I, I think I don't know that anything was holding me back in a way. I mean, I was super lucky with my career path. Like I had decent work. Like I worked for a manufacturer and that got me work because I knew how to run that manufacturer's equipment and it was expensive. And was that, you know, Synclavier? Yeah, exactly. That was the Synclavier. So that got me onto some projects and got me into the touring and things like that. I mean, but the things that held me back from being better at it Mm -hmm. were all the things we've just talked about today, just having ideas about how I was going to do something before I did it. And that made me so biased against thinking that it could fail, that you sort of deal with stuff that's not great. And also just, you need practice. You need to learn how to listen and then how to turn knobs to make the thing you want to hear happen. I mean, that that's, there's some people who seem to be able to do it from birth. Like Neil Avron was at University of Miami when I was there. Amazing producer, mixer, engineer. And his stuff sounded like released records from the second I met him, like unbelievable. (laughs) Whereas my stuff was that usual muddy boxy mess that it is when you start off. So there are some people who seem to be able to sonically do it right away, but it took me years to be able to actually make stuff sound okay. Yeah. I think, I mean, I I don't, no, if I can comment on how my mixes are today, but I certainly know that they weren't that great to begin with. Yeah. Um, I uh, so now I know that for you you'd already described this but the transition from the, you know, mixing on a console to in the box, we don't have to go into those specifics, but just that the challenge of making a transition like that, that was a huge one and you really described it to us because it involved like finding a studio to put the gear in, all kinds of major major decisions. What about um what you felt like was holding you back to make a huge shift like that and any advice about, you know, helping us make it through a huge shift ourselves? Yeah. I mean, the only thing that was holding me back was fear. It was this idea that I wouldn't actually be any good without the gear. And the, the real 
I'd already decided I was going to do it because I had to do it. I just I physically couldn't keep mixes on the console as long as people wanted me to. And I was turning down work. You know, you'd have to say, no, I cannot do that project because I know this is going to be at least three weeks because these people are terrible at getting back to me. And it would suck both financially and creatively. Mm -hmm. So but it, it was just getting over the fact that it was the gear doing the mix. And the way I got over it was I was going to go actually have lunch with Chad Blake. I think told this story a million times. He's probably sick of me telling it. But <laughs> I was I had this like list of questions in my head about, hey, man, how do you deal with this in the box? How do you do because he'd been mixing in the box for five or six years already at that point. Oh, interesting. And while we were driving over there, I just kind of it's one of those moments where your brain figures stuff out and said look the only answer you need to any of these questions is the fact that he's doing it that's it yeah his records sound good and he's doing it and there's nothing specific he's going to be able to tell you just like there's nothing specific i can tell you about which plugin to use and how to set it it's just if he can do it and it can sound good then unless I'm a total loser. I can do it and it can sound good. And the best part about that was it removed my excuses. And that's, I think, the biggest thing for people starting out is you feel like it doesn't sound good because I don't have this plug in or I don't have this gear. And like I've heard people say that the only reason I can mix in the box is because everything I mix is recorded so well. And I, I find that to be wrong, but also it's kind of insulting. It's like, well, mm. So I can't do it if it's not well recorded. Well, how about all the stuff I've mixed that isn't well recorded? There's quite a bit of it, but it doesn't matter. It's just as difficult when it isn't recorded well on a console. There's nothing about a console that right. makes that magically easier. And I think that's that's just giving yourself excuses if you believe it, because you'll always find something you don't have access to. That's the reason it's not good. And that's exactly the same thing as the getting rid of excuses for a mix before you send it. You just... If you believe that you have any sort of talent with it and you can hear well, then you should be able to achieve it no matter what you've got in front of you. Well, um, I appreciate you sharing that. And Rockstars, I think Andrew just gave you the best bit of encouragement, all of us, uh, that we could get uh, because the the follow through is to say that, um, you know, as we look around ourselves and we see someone like Andrew, you, yourself making all kinds of wonderful records, that's the only uh, excuse we need to try and make wonderful records ourselves. Yeah, I got an iMac and a pair of headphones. If you know, you're got, doing it, it's out there to be done, and and we should just go out and make great records. Two turntables and a microphone. <laughs> nice. All right, well, so um, how about uh, sharing any advice or um, whether it's a – I'm sort of blending a couple of questions here. Whether it's a resource or just advice or some, some online tool that people might want to be hip to for the business side of doing records for a living. If we want to do this for more than a hobby – do you have any advice for us about uh, making a living? Yeah, kind of. Uh, it's really difficult, but I think you've got to be good at invoicing. That's one thing. So you need to be organized with your invoices. Don't type them in Word because you can't keep track of them. Um, if you can spring for FileMaker or some database program that does invoicing, or even if you just use like QuickBooks for your general accounting, that mm -hmm. can do invoicing. And that will tell you when something is late. It'll also force you to have enough information that you can actually expect to get paid because you can't really send an invoice out of a program with nothing on it except some crayon drawings and like, oh, you owe me $20. Like, no, I need your address. I need to give you my address, my bank account details if you're going to wire it in, like whatever. So it just forces you to be organized. And I think I remember pretty early on in my career, I spent two days in FileMaker 
designing from scratch a, an invoicing thing, which I actually used until earlier this year. And I remember thinking like, man, this is the biggest waste of time. I should be hanging out with my wife. And my son was, I don't know, maybe two then or something like mm -hmm. that. And like, I can't afford to take this time. But that time made my life so much easier because I could hit a button and it would tell me everybody was past due and I could just pick up the phone and call them. And in terms of the business side of it, getting paid is really, really difficult. So if you're organized with your invoicing, that that's going to be a big head start. I think that's a great takeaway. So uh, I'm, I'm now using QuickBooks Online, but I feel like what I learned was that our responsibility is to just make it as easy as possible for somebody to pay you. Yes, they'll always, if it's difficult, they just won't pay. And it's not necessarily because they're trying to rip you off. It's because it's difficult. It's because life's hard. <laughs> It is. Because everybody's got as many emails to look at as you do, you know? Well, and also, I if mean, you're maybe lucky not enough, you personally, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, but if you're lucky enough to be dealing with someone who's successful enough that they've got like a business manager or something like that, they've got software they're using. And if they don't have all the right info, they can't send you a check. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, just be organized with that. I mean, it's not like life changing at all, but it is an important piece of the puzzle. Okay. So, two quick final questions here. Um, this one is, uh, it's kind of hypothetical, but, uh, I'm just going to skip right to the question, which is if you wanted to suggest to the rock stars, a very simple setup to start, um, maybe let's not even talk about recording. Let's just talk about mixing. Um, what is, uh, you know, and you've said this already, but, but I'll, I just want to give you a chance to say it again. What, what advice do you have for the rock stars for what they need to be able to mix a great sounding record? You need to be able to hear what you're doing. So if you're lucky enough to find some headphones that actually translate when you listen elsewhere, that is genius because that's super cheap. Um, but otherwise, you've got to have a decent pair of speakers in a room where they sound okay. Like you can't mix what you can't hear. And it's so easy, especially when you're starting out. You know, you're in a room that's a rectangle. If you're lucky, it's not a square, but it's going to be a rectangle. Right. So you need to put stuff up in the corners, you know, just tip a mattress up in the corner. And now it's no longer a square and you got a free bass trap. Like do stupid cheap stuff. My studio in L.A. had Ikea hall carpets all over the walls. I just like nailed them onto one by twos and screwed them to the wall. And opposite each other, there would be bare walls. So it was like a checkerboard pattern with them. And immediately, this big reflective room became manageable. So if you can make a room sound like a living room, where if you watched a movie, you could actually understand the dialogue, that's probably good to mix in. Hmm. Um, but you've got to get your monitoring right. Otherwise, you know, what are you doing? You've got no reference. Now, do we need a $50,000 Pro Tools rig or something to mix with? No, you, I mean, I personally think Pro Tools is the best software to mix in, but that's because it's what I know. It also cl more closely mimics like actual historic recording gear and automation modes and things like that, which can hold it back. I mean, Ableton does some stuff you could never do in Pro Tools, but um, I recommend Pro Tools. The stock plugins that come with it are awesome. You don't have to go third party with any stuff like that. Um, but yeah, any of the DAWs are advanced enough that you could mix in them at this point, I'm sure. Um, and, but I mean, as far as the, you know, we've seen racks of interfaces and, and big, powerful computers and stuff. Yeah, I not guess, for mixing, I guess where though. I'm, where I'm headed is I, I'm sort of hoping you'll remind us that a laptop and a pair of headphones is kind of, well, the, I, the only, on. the only reason I've got an iMac 
Pro now is because my laptop, which is what I mixed on for the last five years, couldn't keep up with a couple of plugins that I really like that are just CPU hogs. Mm -hmm. So I like, oh, I'll get an iMac instead. And I actually hate that it's not portable. My rig for years has been, since I moved in the box, the very first day I moved in the box, it's been a laptop. Um, I've got a UAD twin because it gives me some UAD chips and I just use that headphone amp sometimes. But mm -hmm. another really great cheap one is uh, the AudioQuest Dragonfly. It's the size of a little USB thumb drive and it's only a D to A. There's no inputs, but it does every sample rate and it sounds great. Don't use the built-in headphone output on the laptop though because they, they really don't sound good. It makes it much more difficult because they don't, not only is like the frequency response kind of weird, the dynamic response isn't so great. Like transients don't make it through because it's all a little bit underpowered. Okay. Um, but the Dragonfly, I think, I think it's less than 200 bucks it might even be 100 bucks now from amazon and it sounds great and you don't need any special drivers for it it just works just set it as the output from pro tools or does whatever it, does it uh, plug into the usb jack or yeah like yeah and it's standard usb so you'll need a dongle if you've got one of the newer computers but yeah it's just usb i think it's usb 2 it might not even be 3 um so that's very cool and i, I you know you may have taking it for granted. But for us to hear you even just say, hey, by the way, don't just use the built-in output on your laptop. The laptop's great, but but get a little thing for your headphones. That does yeah. are huge insights. Yeah, it makes a big difference. I remember when I first got the Dragonfly, I was at a friend's house and we were A-being just the built-in output to the Dragonfly. And you, whenever you're A-being something, you like to be able to say, oh, well, the low mids are better. And Oh, the the mids, you know, like you find frequency ranges to talk about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely every frequency was better with the Dragonfly. It was like it was like you had a brick wall between you and the speakers with the built-in output, and you just took the wall away when you put the Dragonfly on. Very so cool. night and day, and cheap and self-powered, and like so it'll just run off the battery. It's awesome. Oh, very cool. All right, so um, this question pops to mind: You're you're mobile. You got headphones. You got a laptop. You can kind of go anywhere, you know, as long as you got a full battery on your computer, you might be able to just walk anywhere. Are there some favorite places you enjoy mixing? Are there many places? Do you like to go sit out in the sun? Um, you know, do you go down by by the river, the Mono River, and sit by the the, the bubbling brook and mix? Well, I actually, I live an hour away from Mono Valley. So I, if I went down there, that would be a, quite a hike to just go mix and not use the studio. Okay. But no, I mean, I love having natural light. And I love having a view. So for a little while, I had my speakers set up uh, in a caravan in the middle of a field. And that was awesome. The nice. views were just amazing. So I love that. I love having a view of the outside world. Um, but after that, like I mean, mixing outdoors, that just like if I'm going to go be outdoors, I'm not going to mix. Right. It's time to be you outdoors. Know. Yeah, exactly. So I, I love having a, a picture of it so that I remember why I want to finish. Um, standing or sitting, do you have any preferences about, uh, do you, do you find yourself enjoying being able to, to get up out of the chair and, and, and stand or move around when you're working? No, I sit all the time and I slump and it's terrible. I got bad <laughs> posture. Um, I've even got one of those kneeling chairs and it's great, but, um, I usually am not sitting in it properly. Um, but no, I just, I just sit and work. Yeah. I don't. Even when I mix on the console, I wanted to sit. I, I know there are a lot of people who love the energy of standing up and pushing the faders around, but I just found it distracting. Like, because pushing the faders with your fingers, if you're using a control surface, you're on a console, mm -hmm. you don't 
do 12 db moves you're doing a couple of db here and there and i feel like if i'm standing up i don't have enough control over my hands like it, i want to rest the heel of my hand on the console at which point i might as well be sitting down nice okay so, all right cool yeah. well you seem to be in in good health so uh, uh whatever you're doing is sounds like the right thing to be doing <laughs> oh you don't know what it's like in here <laughs> <laughs> um all right so here's the last question this one is hypothetical but we're going to take the Wayback machine the Wayback studio machine and you're going to go back in time and find young Andrew and uh, tap yourself on the shoulder. You turn around and you're what are you doing here, dude with the beard and, and long curly hair? And you say, well, I've come back to give you this, this one bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day. What advice would you give yourself if you could? Um, it's got to be that nothing matters except what comes out of the speakers. And I say it a lot, so it sounds like a catchphrase to me, and I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed when I say it, but it is, that's it. That's all there is. Well, right on. Well, um, I look forward to hearing this interview come out of the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. What an absolute honor and pleasure to have you here. And thank you for sharing so much insight and so much teaching. I mean, I know you're just incredibly generous with all the teaching you do everywhere, but we appreciate you being here. Thanks, Lidge. It's a lot of fun. Um, can you let the rock stars know how and where they can find you online to learn more about you? If you learn to spell my last name properly, you find me. It's okay. it's really, it's that simple. I mean, my manager's got a website with um, discography and things like that. That's uh, Frank McDonough. It's mcdman.com, I think. Um, and yeah, if you just search for my name spelled right, there aren't that many of us in the world. So I come up pretty close to the top. S-C-H-E-P-S. Exactly. Well done. Well done. Um, well, thank you again. And Rockstars, I want to remind you that, of course, I'll also have links in the show notes. If you're on your mobile device, just click through and um, I'll include a, a YouTube playlist and Spotify playlist so you can listen to more of Andrew's records. And if you're on your computer, just go to rsrockstars.com and then search for Andrew and spell his last name Sheps correctly and, and it'll take you right to the blog post. Thanks so much for listening. Andrew, thank you for being here with us. I look forward to meeting you again in person sometime Great. soon. Thanks, man. Cheers, man. All right, bye. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.